point. I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Um, Matthew chapter 5 verse 4 is going to be the sole text that we camp out in uh, this morning. Um, and so we're continuing a series in the Beatitudes. Um, and the whole point of this series is that we look at what Jesus sets forth for us uh, in the gospel accounts um, as uh, he's in the fact that he sets people free to, and transforms them to live lives of God's blessing by kingdom values. So we're looking at each of those throughout this series. And so um, this morning, before we enter into the text, um, can we just begin with a word of prayer to lay ourselves before the Lord to search us by his Holy Spirit? God, thank you uh, for your word. Holy Spirit, thank you that the things of our life we are yet to even come to acknowledge, the things that we are blind to, the things that you have yet to even show us, you know they're there already, and yet you love us through it. God, um, as we look at this passage, Holy Spirit, I just pray and ask that my words would be precise, um, that the comfort uh, of your grace would be the thing that enlivens everything, that you'd guard us from despair and keep us in hope and gird us to Jesus, who knows all things about us and yet is bringing the comfort of his grace to bear upon us. And so, God, would you search us this morning as we lay ourselves open to your Holy Spirit's um, work in us. And as we spend time in the Word together today, would the life of it flow into us? Would it, would it enliven our infections? Would it also um, illuminate the dark places of our hearts that you want grace to flow in? For your honor and glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 reads this. This is Jesus speaking as well. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I have always hated taking inventory. If you've ever worked in a retail setting or um, in a business area that requires you to have to do this, um, no, I sympathize with this and hate it just as much. Um, when I worked retail for six years um, during high school, college, and leading up to marriage, um, the, those six years, uh, one of the most irritating things for me was inventory day. Okay, uh, if it was a slower day, or if there was a holiday weekend, um, or if there was a new shipment of merchandise, or there was an area of retail or of merchandise that just was long overdue for um, keeping accounts, uh, or maybe I just irritated my boss just that little extra bit. I'm sure I don't do that here at all. Um, he would. He would banish and exile me to, to the, the back corridors, and we would, uh, we would have to do inventory. And so if you've ever done this, you know how slow and painstaking this work is. And all the more painful, you're not getting commission while you're doing this, okay? But taking inventory was important to the day-to-day -day work of the store and the supplying the needs of the customers with just what they needed. And so since I worked particularly in my specific occasion for an auto parts store, 
Uh, it was often in the details of these things that meant the difference between a business having to hold a, an automobile longer, okay, and having to incur those costs and those inconveniences, or and it would also uh, keep the customer being without their vehicle for an additional time. And if you've ever had that happen, you know the inconvenience and struggle of that as well. And so here's what it required of you. It required you to actually individually sort through every piece of merchandise to make sure the stock was correct. You had to identify if there was anything that was misplaced. You had to then catalog it and carefully reorganize it. And most of the time, it was found out that there was, we were more in want than we were um, in abundance. That We had things that were missing. Things didn't match up. There was a void oftentimes more so than not. And I hated this process even more when I got dreaded the assigned and dreaded most difficult part of having to do inventory, and that was the wheel bolts. Okay? Can you imagine counting bolts? You stare at a bolt long enough, they all start looking the same. Okay? And so... What I found was these were the most, the most disorderly, the most misplaced, and they were so similar in what they looked like that it often took an extra degree of focused attention just to identify and work through it. And so I think, when I think about this beatitude and the work of finding out we're poor in spirit and then grieving the reality of that in mourning, think this is what this kind of feels like in sort of a silly way, I understand. But it feels much the same. This tedious, slow, painstaking work of taking account. It takes regular and careful attention to the state of our souls and individually identifying and dealing with what's missing, what's disorderly, What's in want in our character and our life? But it is of utmost importance and necessity for being in the blessed life of the kingdom. And so Jesus, the main point I want to hit on this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture is that Jesus offers God's blessing of true comfort to those who would acknowledge their desperate need of transforming grace. And the means we do this is through this process of mourning. You see, this verse could actually be translated, happy are those who grieve. Happy are those who are sad. Can you imagine anything that seems ever more unnatural to us? Okay? These seem to be completely contradictory statements. We feel that, right? And so, but what Jesus is showing us is that the people of God are often marked by a mourning for the profound and personal loss of righteousness. And that's the means by which God's comfort comes to bear in our life. And so being God's people means we must be those who mourn. So I want to give you this morning three principles distilled from this beatitude uh, that are necessary for us to, to live in the blessed life of God. And so the first is this, that we must receive lasting joy through the sorrows of repentance. 
So what I want to do is just like Jesus is doing is he contrasts a kingdom value to a worldly value. The thing that's unnatural to us to the thing that Jesus is calling us into. So the kingdom value first and foremost would be that we must grieve the condition of mankind and ourselves under the gaze of God. And yet the worldly value, and that's what's natural in us, resists this completely, right? What is the worldly value? To suppress any and all gnawing awareness of fault in you. Of any wound of the past, to reject it, put it out of sight, and put it off if possible. And yet Jesus says, you must not do this. You must grieve it, acknowledge it. Under the, condition, uh, under the gaze of God. And so, having admitted spiritual poverty and unrighteousness, the blessed of the kingdom then ex- moved to express and feel, friends, the regret and devastation over the reality of their fallen condition. The loss of their innocence and the disappointment and ju- ultimate judgment of God who is at, coming at those things. So, friend, to be in the kingdom, we must be those who mourn. I think uh, this painful admission of our condition is modeled well for us in one liturgy that I read recently. It says this, uh, There is so much lost in this world, O Lord, so much that aches and groans and shivers for want of redemption, so much that seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, unhinged, Even in our own hearts. Yes, even in our own hearts, we bear the mark of all that is broken. For we feel this. We who are your children feel this empty space where some lost thing should have rested in its perfection. Oh Lord, how how can we not weep when waking each day in such a veil of tears? And so the blessed life actually begins with such a sorrowful admission. This is what Jesus is getting to. That in our recognition of our destitution and our bankruptcy before God, we mourn the reality of it. And so the mourning and devastation around us that we see in the condition of this world that has fallen from the perfection that God set forth for us should actually lead us and expose our own personal devastation. It's not enough to say, to look at the shards of brokenness around us and say, sin did this. And that's good and true and we should do that. But ultimately, that's meant to turn in on us to say, God, sin did this. It's still in me. The problem, the ultimate problem we must grieve is ultimately here in our own hearts. And that's the thing that God uses to actually bring our comfort and redemption through. Another kingdom value is that not only do we grieve the the general condition around us, but we must grieve specific personal offenses and destitution before God in repentance. And so we have an example here in Adam and Eve um, in Genesis. When they're confronted with their sin, um, how did they respond? You have Adam go up. God, it's that woman you gave me. All right? He shifts the blame, excuses it. 
It's either her fault, or if it's not her fault, it's at least your fault, Lord. And then we have Eve saying, the serpent deceived me, Lord. So what have they done? They've excused, they've blamed it, and then we see also, they make their own coverings out of what they can gather from around them to hide the true nature of where they stand. And yet all, all along, God knew their condition. And yet he invited them to take it to, re- take it to him to receive his covering. And yet the response for them and all too often for us is to cover it, excuse it, and blame it. But God's inviting us to receive his atoning covering instead. So the opposite of this sort of grieving is actually laid forth in the scriptures as arrogance. So the worldly value that is against this kingdom value is to minimize guilt and desperation and excuse it away in any sense that you might can. You do more good than you do bad. You're actually better off than most, right? Suppress those things. Cover those things. Resist those things. To grieve personal offenses and destitution before God is something that is painful. It is like drawing out poison as we trace each progression of the destruction to its source that life may flow in, that the blood of life might flow in. As one 19th century Scottish theologian and preacher by the name of Alexander White, I think, helpfully captures this. He says this, The only way to get rid of sin as well as sorrow is to pour it out before God. Now, as soon as they enter, as soon as it arises... Pour it out before God. Pour them out before they are welled in. Repudiate them, deny them, denounce them, declare them before God, and pour them out like poison. The more you repent and turn from your sin, the more you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good. And the more you wash your hands in innocency, the more you loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. And as often as such terrible experiences as these visit you, when your guilty conscience awakens again in you like the fury that it is, when you are no longer to look up for absolute shame, even in the honor, the hour of absolute despair, even when death and hell would almost be a hiding place for your agony, fall down then and pour it all out before God. For it is neither death nor hell that is a refuge for you. Almighty God and Almighty God alone, He is your refuge in the rock of your salvation. And though you may have poured out your sin in your heart 10,000 times before, pour it all out again. This is what Christ calls us to. But it's painful, is it not? Just as 1 Corinthians denotes the grief and shame, Paul instructs uh, the church to actually grieve the grief and shame of specific sins. And in this particular occasion, in 1 Corinthians, it's a case of incest, no less. There's a sorrowful over a church that even such a thing is possible, that the same sorrow and mourning is the call to the Christian to grieve that their personal cases of guilt are there and that such a thing was possible in them. This is the mourning to which we're called. But friends, as one who is often comfortable with sullenness and can be with melancholy, I want to be careful to distinguish this here. This is not what Jesus is calling us to. 
a melancholy spirit. This is, this is a fa- in fact, a false sense of the acknowledgement of a sinful state. You see, the mistake of melancholy is that it mistakes the loss of innocence with the loss of personal expectation. The despair of melancholy is centered on self-righteousness rather than God's righteousness as it rehearses over and over to us a habit of condemnation, and the enemy loves to leverage this. But it, too, must be mourned as a faulty rejection of guilt through the sorrows of repentance. Friends, this beatitude asks us today, what are you mourning? As this text gripped me several weeks ago, Brandon, what are you mourning? Will you ask that of you? The Holy Spirit asks that of you. Will you be given to mourning? Will you allow this to lead you into the sorrows of the repentance that receives lasting joy from Jesus? And so this text is for those who are tired of themselves. You ever just get tired of yourself? Maybe I'm just the only one. We grieve the sins that are readily at our, at our feet, that readily rise up and entangle us, that pride, lust, coldness of heart and spirit still finds a way to show itself, even in the warmest of graces. And so today, friends, I mourn in my own spirit. I mourn that, it, that sin is still so close at hand for me at every moment, that even in this moment, my heart can twist and distort it for some sinful gain. I mourn that the yoke of Christ is still so unnatural to me. I mourn that self-preservation and self-sufficiency are still my default positions. And I mourn that rather than being attentive to the Lord in the moment, I often would rather be detached and numb and escaping. What is meant here, friends, is a passionate grief over the awfulness of sin which corresponds to the action of repentance. And the deep sense of regret gives way to a will to be delivered from sin that we seek it from God. And as we do so, he grants in us the celebration of forgiveness and a changed life. This is what Jesus offers to us. That those who would come to him with their griefs and their sorrows in repentance, they find they can trade it for mourning. They're mourning for honor, rather. They're mourning for gladness. They're mourning for praise. And so, friends, just as you and I cross the threshold of salvation through self-denial, through the death of self, so too are we sanctified and built up in Jesus through the millions of daily deaths to self that must happen in the days to follow. Christian, there are still dark, unacknowledged cavernous places in our character where self must die that the light and life of Christ might fill it. And rather than squash that and put that away, it's the love of Christ getting under that to bring that to the surface that you might hold it out that it would no longer condemn you or hold you, but that comfort in life might fill it. You see, those places are dealt the death blow of the cross and are filled with the light and life of Christ through the sorrows of repentance. Here we grieve what needs to die that we might truly live. And God, through this process, has a way in his spirit of bringing his heart upon us as we pour out our hearts to him. 
That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So much so that the blessedness of the kingdom leads us to the second principle. To reject the offerings of this world is not enough. You see, the worldly values being carefree and comfortable by all the promises of this world. But the blessed of the kingdom see this period of suffering as it is and are not led away by its charms. The the world promises unrestricted indulgences as salves to our yearnings and our sense of destitution. And just as we can choose to minimize or reject the acknowledgement of our sin, we can choose to numb them by our own self-appointed means of comfort. Or we can choose to grieve them before God and find his comfort by his appointed means. And so as one modern preacher says it, to illustrate the opposite of the beatitude and the unbeatitudes of the world, congratulations to the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Friends, we live in a condition of an already but not yet. The scriptures are clear. Christ has come and brought redemption, but he's yet to come to bring it to full consummation. Even now, as Christians, we're confronted with meeting points of both joy and sorrow. We can fill our lives with false comforts that keep us from true abiding comforts. Jesus told his disciples there would be a season of sorrow as the current state of the world gives way to full redemption. That's John chapter 16. And that those cavernous wild places that often are in us, oftentimes they meet the wild, untamed places of the world. And sometimes the enemy can use that to condemn us, but often God shows us those places in the world that expose those wild places in our hearts so that we might bring them to him to show us the areas of restoration work he wants to do. Listen, Christ, we overcome them both through Christ by the grieving of repentance. And Christ comes to apply light to those dark places in our character as they are awakened and renewed and renovated and conquered for the enjoyment of God. And so friends, here's the key. Those who are blessed in the kingdom are repentant mourners who actually desire to be completely conquered by God and determined not to sin. The question we must be asking ourselves is, do we actually want to be rid of sin? Do we actually want to be conquered by Christ? If so, we must mourn it through the sorrows of repentance. That's how we receive this joy. But notice also, Jesus says, you, today we will, you will weep and lament, but in the world will rejoice. But you will be sorrowful and your sorrow will be turned into joy. So now you have sorrow, but when I see you again, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And so there's a prophetic witness of the people of God has a way of angering the people of the world. They're not satisfied with the things of this world. They're not satisfied with the world's standards of being comfortable and numb. They're not satisfied by being validated by the means of this world, but they look to Jesus for their personal comfort and ultimate joy. So friends, if this world's become comfortable to you, take heed that you not be of the world. Friends, this beatitude asks us today, what is our comfort? What do our lives say about what we're looking to as our ultimate comfort? So to live in the blessedness of the kingdom is to realize that the comforting is God's proper work, 
to live in the truth that indestructible joy is beyond the allures of this world and it is for us now and tomorrow in full. So Christian, we therefore remain in the assured comfort of the kingdom. That's the third principle. As one commentator says, God turns earlier desolation, being mourning, into perfect consolation, both in individuals and also in the people of God. That's God's work. So the disciples will be comforted by God when the ungodly seek their own comforts. They'll console themselves by their own means, becoming ultimately indifferent to the things of God. And that's what seeking our own comfort does to us. It numbs us to the comfort of God and renders us indifferent to his leading. But the text here uses the verb in the future passive tense. Let me get nerdy on you for a second. Okay? What that means is there is some kind of eschatological thing going on here. That this comfort is not in and of themselves. It is foreign and it is welling up inside. God is doing that passively. It's not of our own doing. God is applying that and it has its ultimate fruition in the future. That it's growing and it's coming to a head and it's overflowing in us. And so this takes up a prophetic promise. And Revelation 7.17 shows us this. He says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. See, the Lamb is mindful of this specific tear of grief. And He will individually and intimately wipe them all away. Take that to heart, friend. The hardest tear you've shed is the very one Christ will intimately wipe away in that day. That's where your comfort is. True comfort of the morning Christ follower comes in the king who assures us sin will be completely undone and it holds no power. So the Bible makes a distinction that this in, illustrated in ultimate citizenship. There's two cities. There's Zion and then there's Babylon. The city of Zion is the place of heavenly rule where God is where his people for and with them. While the citizens of the world are illustrated as Babylon, they are the worldly kingdom under, doomed under sin to perish under the reign and rule of sin. In Revelation 18, we see that the weeping merchants of the earth fall in Babylon are in despair and grief because they've sought their gain and their hope in the world and its downfall brings their own downfall. And so each man has a choice in a kingdom, in a citizenship, and every, each one of them will grieve in some measure and in some way. Will we grieve today in hope as those of Zion or will we grieve tomorrow in judgment as those in Babylon? Don't be mistaken, friends. We're either growing into the likeness of Jesus or into the likeness of this world. Which one is it for us? But those of the kingdom have their promised comfort that keeps them assured in the morning of their own sin and their longing after its ultimate undoing. 
bound up to us in Revelation 21.4. He says, in that day, God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The comfort of the kingdom is sin will be no more. So friends, will we live in the blessing of God? Here is happiness in our Savior. That those marked as the people of God live in a blessed morning that gives way to a growing and expectant joy. And so friends, Jesus tells us in John 3, it's a familiar passage to all of us, I'm sure most of us, but a little bit further from the familiar verses in verses 19 to 21, it says this, that the love that's come into the world, offering eternal life to those who receive it by faith, those who reject it have received judgment. He says this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest he be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So friend, as the worship team comes, what God, whatever God has brought to bear in your life this morning, will you bury it, will you belittle it, will you suppress it, medicate it, or will you mourn it? That restoration might come. Friend, it is the love of God, and I so miss this for us for him to expose the dark places of our life that the light and life of Christ might flow in that he would show us the painful the disorderly and the void places and show us these so that in the painful admission of those we might receive everlasting comfort and life in him